told me something surprising when you read this book. Yeah, what was that? You really identified with a lot of the terminology that he was using. And I think you were talking about like to describe being under certain rules and strictures in childhood, that kind of thing. Yeah. It surprised me because I had a very similar upbringing to Pete Holmes, and you didn't. And yeah. I guess kind of the point of the book is... <laughs> It shouldn't be surprising at all that like anybody has that same experience. But yeah, so I, I'm curious to know, even though you did not have a religious upbringing, how was it similar to, and this is assuming that you were talking about sort of the more childhood developmental years, yeah, learning about conditional love, transactional acceptance, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think I remember what you were talking about because I did feel... Um... I felt like I related to it a weird amount more than I thought I was going to. Like I thought yeah. it was going to be cool learning about this guy that I've listened to and stuff. But I, yeah, I ended up really, yeah, thinking about my own upbringing a lot at certain points. Uh, the adolescence was more, I think, what I was like. There was definitely a lot of stuff with actual like childhood, childhood mm-hmm. that I saw parallels with. But it was a lot of the teen years and kind of the early twenties and more of the perspective. Because yeah, I did not grow up religiously, but I did grow up in kind of a weirdly innocent way. Like, I guess it's sheltered in some ways, but also just kind of like, I had this starry-eyed perspective about the world. I didn't drink, I didn't do drugs. I didn't date. Like, I just kind of like hung out with my friends. I played music. I just, you know, I just kind of stayed in my lane and just kind of did my thing. Huh. And I never really saw any issue with that. And my peer groups and my community didn't really challenge that because there was kind of nothing to challenge. And so, like, as I left my upbringing phase, there was this real rocky period of several years where I started to experience, like, oh, there's other stuff out there. And some of it was good, and some of it was, like, an anger about, like, why the hell wasn't I experiencing this stuff growing up? And so I would continue to sort of fulfill that prophecy. And, like, it was just, yeah, a lot of the the pattern that he seemed to follow going from just cruising along in a faith-based existence to questioning to the the faith to kind of abandoning it for a period of time and and then wondering what the hell to do with that void. I I related a lot to that, but I definitely substituted faith for for something else. Mm. Not even entirely sure if it's a thing or if it's just a similar perspective, but there yeah, there was a lot of stuff that he mentioned that I was like, "Well, yeah, I've lived that." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting. What I what I related to definitely the most was sort of the the purity culture stuff. Yeah. And I guess like I spent a lot of my adolescence combating innocence or combating the idea that I was supposed to be in any way innocent. And that lasted pretty much up through the point where I like whole cloth left the church completely. Yeah. I was 20 or 21. And what I realized I could not do anymore is pretend that innocence is important in any way. And that's what he addresses a lot in this book is like, there shouldn't be any conditions around how you are loved or how you are accepted, especially not when it comes to a God who is supposed to love you unconditionally. Yeah. You know, like, shouldn't that extend to the church, to the community, to the family, why should there be any such thing as a condition on which you are to be loved or accepted when if we're really being honest with ourselves, that would be pretending that innocence is at all a requisite for community or a requisite for faith. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird, like a fool's errand when you think about something like innocence, because it's, you're sort of from the moment you're born, it's like, it's like death or something. Like from the moment you're born, you're just kind of progressing towards this line or in this case away from it like you may start off a certain level of innocent because you're you just haven't experienced anything but you're going to be accumulating stuff and like more importantly things are going to be done to you or around you so it's not even a matter of how you're living at a certain point in your life it's just that you're exposed to more or there's more people making more decisions like it's just such a faulty thing to cling to i think as you're getting older and older because it's so easy to screw with it on a fundamental level. And if that, if your like acceptance is sort of predicated on that being completely unchanged, you're never going to be accepted. Yeah, true. And, you know, thinking about purity culture and thinking about 
original sin and yeah you know, I, I recently read this book by Peter Rollins called the idolatry of God and mm-hmm. he talks about original sin being yes let's concede that we're all born with that but let's also concede that it is not sin sin meaning that it is not volitional action or inaction against someone original sin meaning that there is an original separateness from God original sin in that there is a gap between you and the rest of the world that you become conscious of at about six to eight months old. And, you know, before that you are just sort of like in the world and (laughs) you have no self-concept. And once you develop self-concept as an infant, then there is a sense of separateness from you and other. Mm. And that other necessarily includes God. Mm. And so original sin... In that sense, we are always kind of trying to regain uh, oneness, if you are to use a new agey term for it. Anyway, I feel weird talking about another book to talk about this book. (laughs) But uh, in that sense, okay, so in the purity culture sense, we use original sin basically to condition people to feel like they are impure. And then they have to spend their whole lives proving that they can be pure yeah. Yeah. And I, oh man. So we're in this interesting place in the series right now <laughs> <laughs> where it's going to take a long time for our broadcast schedule to catch up to where I am now. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> we've taped episodes in which I talk about sort of where my spiritual journey has led me and has in fact, for the time being ceased to be a spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to give anything away too much, but I'm wary of going any farther down the purity culture lane because I'm really trying to not argue with Christians right now. Mm-hmm. It's harmful to me when I do. Okay. And it's never harmful to them. <laughs> well dude to be honest like so much of that book i mean religion was a like a focal point for so much of it but i didn't take it as a religious experience or a religious journey or it didn't have as much to do with religion once I finished the book as I thought it did while I was reading the book. You know, like he touched on it so many times, but it seemed like it was like religion ended very early in that book. And the rest of it was him just spinning off, trying to figure out what the hell he was supposed to grab onto or what he was going to do with his time or do with his relationships. Or There was so much in that momentum and that inertia that happened afterwards that I thought was, that's, those were my biggest takeaways from that book was what happened in that realm. Yeah, the loss of faith is pretty early, and the rest of it is Pete Holmes trying to figure out what he is liberated to do. Exactly, yeah. That's not to say that the loss of faith isn't important or didn't yeah. constantly plague him, because that, I mean, that's a huge deal. <laughs> but right. no, he, he didn't spend the whole book wondering where his faith had gone. He was wondering what he was supposed to do now. Yeah. So essentially, you've got Pete Holmes... An aspiring comedian who has grown up in the evangelical church, goes to a Christian college, gets married at a young age, gets divorced, has a loss of faith, and that's kind of when it's sort of right at the typical Saturn return time of life, like he's 28, 29, Mm. when that's happening. And as many people who lose faith, they feel a void, something needs to fill that void, And for a lot of people, interestingly enough, something does very organically most of the time. And for Pete Holmes, that was an experience he had on mushrooms. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) At a a music festival, I believe. Yeah. And this kind of fulfills this desire that he's always had to know and to engage with this question, what is this? What is all this? Mm -hmm. So he has this psychedelic experience that makes... In air quotes, I'm going to start using inverted commas. In inverted commas, this more known to him in sort of a mystical way. So I love that 
when he has that experience, he's sort of at exactly the right age for it. Yeah. Any younger, and he would have wanted to cast the evangelical shadow of doubt over an experience that could, by definition, by the church's definition, be considered blasphemous or Mm -hmm. or be considered sacrilegious in some way. I think he's right at the perfect age where something like that can happen to you and you don't question it and you take a cue from it. And gosh, his story is so, so similar to my own in some ways and completely different in others. Yeah. And I've basically, I've been following like what he's gone through on his, on his podcast. And And I mean, that book and that podcast were kind of a huge inspiration for us when you think about what we're trying to do with our thing. It's like, I think that that level of vulnerability that he kept the entire time was very striking to me. And it's apparent on his podcast as well, but just kind of laying it all down and just trying to figure stuff out in real time. There's something really cool and really freeing about that. And, you know, to run into corners every so often or to screw up publicly, like just like he was admitting to mistakes or admitting to things that he thought were totally legit and just almost life-changingly important and he was hugely passionate about and then you know he'd end up on the skids and be like ah that didn't work and then change like I found the repetition of experiences like that throughout the book to be really kind of impactful to me at the time so just realize like you know when you're living those things it can feel like crap like you just you feel like a complete failure but when you zoom out and look at someone else who survived a number of them or who's questioned them repeatedly and brought that curiosity to it it's it's cool as hell and you start to see how a person really gets formed you said that your adolescence was sort of innocent, mm. but there's an interesting line to me between innocence and enforced innocence. Yeah, that's a good point. So it's like just as no one was challenging sort of your lack of experience, no one was enforcing a lack of experience either. No one was enforcing. Well, they kind of were. It was a weird, like, it wasn't being enforced by any predetermined rule book or yeah any even any plan. It was just kind of like this weird symbiosis between the authority figures around me and the people that I looked up to kind of laying out this example and then me just not feeling any and truly just not feeling any need to challenge it. Like I didn't have any issues with it fundamentally. Every so often there would be things that I would kind of rub against and be like, what the hell? And, you know, we would work through stuff like that, but it was always a very kind of like, it was nurturing in those respects where I could have those conversations and kind of like, I remember fighting, you know, curfew crap when I was a kid, like kind of being like, this is dumb. This is a stupid age for me to be having to come home at a certain time, like having stuff like that. And it would work out. But for the most part, it was just kind of the way that like my parents or that my authority figures were, they were more like kind of straight laced people. And the whole deal was usually like to be open to experiences. We went to a lot of like concerts. We were always like looking at art. Like there was a lot of like, keep your mind open, live, you know, try stuff. But also we don't fuck up, you know? So like it was enforced and they they were strict, but yeah, there wasn't any dogma attached to it. There wasn't any ideology attached to it really. It was just kind of like, this is the way you do it. And so that's where like, I did feel similar to him, especially in the, um, the romantic components of the book when he started to get older and realized like, this is what people have been doing the whole time. Like this is way better than what I was doing. And like, I just, I had the same thing. I, I went from being like very kind of just like goody goody, like, Oh, I guess this girls to like when I was in my early twenties being like, Oh shit, I've been doing the wrong. Th-. Like, this is what I thought this is what you're supposed to do was just be running around and like rebelling against all that stuff that I thought was, was great. So I had a little bit of a different kind of loss of faith where like I had faith in these people. I had faith in these ways of living. And then I realized I've missed so much shit because I bought into this and I got so pissed and I just started running the other way and started just grabbing anything that I thought I was like supposed to be doing. So I didn't change, you know, I just kind of switched teams. (laughs) Yeah. And then later in my twenties, I had that feeling of like, nope, there's a middle ground and you're sort of responsible for cobbling that together yourself. There was a weird kind of undercurrent throughout that book for me that it was like a conscious revisiting of childhood, you know? It's like all the stuff that you go through unconsciously when you're a kid mm. that just kind of like one day you wake up and it's all 
together. Like you've just, for better or for worse, you're this now. And it's because of all of these things that you may or may not remember. Like it felt like somebody experiencing that again and documenting it. Because he had a lot of those those firsts or those kind of roller coaster experiences that you would have as a kid that would just sort of get swept up as like, oh yeah, when I was nine or when I was 14 or 16 or some party I went to, whatever. Like he's describing like the first alcohol he had, the first time he ever had sex, the first kind of spiritual reawakenings that he had, like his first crushing breakups, his first flirtations with new passions, like new careers. Mm. There were just so many things in there that I feel like a lot of us would take for granted as being just factors of our our youth or our upbringing or our early 20s or adolescence or whatever that he was forced to revisit at a time when he was acutely conscious of all of them. And that was a cool, like, latent quality to that book for me. Because I've never really seen it portrayed the way that he did it. Like, so vulnerably, but also without any of the real preachy aspects that can happen sometimes when somebody goes to that vulnerable of a place, it's like they feel like they have to justify it by saying that they've like learned something concrete or like now they, they've earned the authority to come back down from the mountaintop and teach the rest of us about it. Like he just kind of did it. Like he just kind of told the story and the book ended kind of in progress. Well, it did and it didn't. I mean, I've told you before, like the one thing that I did not like about the ending is that it's conclusive. That is true. Yeah. In a way. Where he kind of finally says, "Okay, this is my guru, and and these are my teachers." And but what's funny is, like, if you listen to his podcast, he's constantly declaring new teachers, <laughs> and yeah, to, like and finding new people to sort of um, whose teachings he can take stock of. Mm. So it, it's not as conclusive in real life as it seems to be in the book. Yeah. But that was sort of the one thing I did not like about the ending is that it sounded like he was saying this journey has all been for now I have my guru Maharaji. No, that's a good point. Yeah. But like that was kind of the one thing that threw me off. And it was because I had at that point spent, I don't know, three or four years listening to his podcast and following him along in these things. And not that I'm like participating in the same way or not that I'm experimenting with all the same things that he is, but I'm listening to it play out as a journey. Mm -hmm. And to me, reading the book and, and being a fan of his, the book read as a recap of that journey, which is fantastic. But now the book is being written to document the destination. Yeah. Now, I don't think that that's what this book is objectively yeah. at all. I want to be clear. But there's certainly a way to read it where it comes across like that. And objectively, that's not what it is because he started writing it well before he had his Ramdas retreat. Yeah. So that sort of gave him an ending. And it's a logical ending for the book. Yeah. And I, I do appreciate the denouement as it aids the narrative. Mm -hmm. But in terms of a spiritual journey and in terms of like, it was it was a little too close to someone saying, this is it, this is enlightenment. Yeah, no, I got that too a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why I got it a little bit from both angles there, because I definitely read it that way too. And I remember it smarting a little bit when the book ended and being like, oh, fuck. Because I just, I, I hate that as like a cliche. But there was also this part of me that having finished that book there was this feeling of like, well, of course, that's where this guy would think he's arrived. Like every chapter has ended with him thinking he's arrived somewhere, you know, and I think the exact same way. So like, of course, this dude would think he attained enlightenment because he's finished his book. If I was writing that book, I would absolutely think the same thing. And then the next day I'd wake up and be like, oh, Jesus Christ. It's just that the cameras aren't rolling anymore. And you continue the next part of the journey. So there was a part of me that was able to forgive that. But it wasn't in the text, you know? I don't know if it was in the subtext. I don't know if I was just projecting or what it was. But, yeah, I was able to take it with a grain of salt for some reason. But I completely agree, though, ordinarily. Mm. That's a, a big pet peeve of mine with a lot of similar types of works. There's something about that all-in mentality that, that he has and that I think a lot of people that encounter the world that way have, where, like, you go into an experience and it's, it's everything, and not just in a live in the moment way, but just you have to like wrap your identity around it and wrap your existence around it in order to truly 
like justify your being there in a way. Mm. And that's one of the other things I really kind of related to is like, I'm like that about a lot of stuff. Like I'm like that a lot of, with like passions that I have or with anything that I'm pursuing or, or just doing on a day-to-day basis. There's always this little part of me that's going and going and going about like, this is the rest of my life. I've attained whatever I'm trying to attain. Like I'm good to go. And I don't know what that is, but as I've gotten older, I've become a little bit more accepting of it. And I've taken it like with that same grain of salt of like, this is going to change tomorrow. But right now, let's let's believe the lie. Or maybe it's not a lie. One of these times it's bound not to be. And I felt him getting more and more at peace with stuff like that too, as the book went on, that he started to slowly let go of like that feeling that he has to check the right box, you know? like Yeah, and that's what I've really appreciated about Again, following his journey, at the very least in terms of listening to his podcast and reading this book, enjoying his stand-up, whatever. Like, like you have to imagine that when this guy suffers, he suffers hard. Yeah. Because his life is full of such joyousness. Like, mm. he would seem to approach everything with a sense of wonder and, you know, his his questions about what is this? What is all this? Why is this so fun? And yet, why is it so sad? And yet, why is it so whatever. And so you have to assume that like the loss of faith for someone like him had to be very hard hitting. Yeah. You have to assume that everything depended for him on his desire to find an alternative and his will to find an alternative way of making sense of the world. Yeah. And making sense of why, why does this all coexist? Why is it true that we cannot all coexist and yet all of these things do coexist naturally just in the ether and in in life around us? And that's kind of what I've always admired about the discourse that he makes possible with Mm -hmm. his podcast and, and the discourse that just exists within this book is, you know, he's trying to make space for it all or if not make space for it all, figure out what has made space for it all. Like, yeah. what, like, I'm not the person who has to contextualize this. Like, no, no burden is being put on me mm-hmm. to contextualize everyone's experience, everyone's joys and sorrows at once. But there's something that came before, and even without necessarily knowing what that thing is, even without having that holy grail moment of discovering what is the thing, Mm. that bonds us or what is the thing that either unites or divides. There has to be a way to feel that thing and experience that thing, even without putting a name to it, in a way that allows coexistence. And I believe that's what he spent a lot of time trying to suss out in the book. Again, again, it's been a while since since I read it, but like, if not in the writing, I know that he spent a lot of time in his life trying to figure out how to coexist with just the faith that he left behind and yeah. the people who subscribe to that faith. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was kind of a, did you pick up the like kind of Siddhartha vibe? Oh yeah. At certain points. That's actually on the cover, right? It's the John Mulaney quote. Like, um, yeah, I have it right here. what would happen if the Buddha. <laughs> Pete Holmes is like the Buddha if the Buddha Googled himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like true though. I mean, that's, there's a weird parallel, I think, to be drawn between those two stories. There's so many points in the Siddhartha story where he's trying to figure out kind of what to do with what he's left behind, whether it's his actual original home that he's abandoned or each of the subsequent homes that he kind of moved on from or the people or or anything and even different aspects of his faith. Like there was some kind of like New York, LA hipster Siddhartha version with this that was kind of cool. It's like you change the context, you change it to things mm-hmm. like coffee shops and bars and and, you know, you're drinking instead of eating elms and Alms. How the hell do you say that word? I've only ever seen it written. Alms? What? A-L-M-S. Oh, alms, yeah. Yeah, alms. I've only ever seen it written down, but, you know, instead of, like, walking around eating alms and meeting people in the woods, like, Pete Holmes is walking around Brooklyn or walking around L.A. or, like, they they felt like very similar stories to me, though. You just switch around details like that. I have never, ever heard someone say eating alms. You eat them, right? Aren't they, uh... (laughs) Like like offerings, 
Like if you were a beggar, they're offerings, around. yeah, but they're not like specifically food. Like a lot of like alms for the poor is like spare change, you know. <laughs> well, but it, it it can be offerings in other ways, yes. So it can be like alms for the poor. Okay, here's a slice of pie. So I guess you you can eat alms. It just sounds very funny. <laughs> no, I think the last time I read that, or a version of that at least, he was it was like fruit and stuff. He was getting like fruit and okay. nuts and those okay. were the alms. But but all this time I've thought that alms were like dried fruit. <laughs> I thought it was like that's what a date is or a raisin. Yeah. Oh, that's too funny. Yeah. What did you make of all the new agey stuff? Like, was it at all hard for you to follow or hard for you to kind of say yes to? Yeah. 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 I mean, you, you know me well enough by now, I think, to kind of know, like, at just like a general level of, I don't know if it's even confusion, but just there's something about that type of thinking that tends to make me very suspicious. And I'm not objectively opposed to it, and I don't think that it's all like horseshit or anything. It's just... Mm. There's something about what happens to a person when they start just going full throttle in that direction that I find very alienating personally and very irritating. So, so yeah, I did have a little bit of trouble with it, but again, I kind of could forgive it because like it provides a very valuable outlet and a very valuable source of information and, and some lines of questioning that I think a lot of people will need at certain points in their life that I have needed at certain points in my life. So it's a little bit hypocritical, but I, I do find that I am suspicious and yeah, a little irritated by it sometimes. I agree that like it present, it has presented me with really valuable questions to ask, mm -hmm. but I don't feel that it has presented me with valuable or necessary vocabulary. I guess valuable is very, very relative here. Um, valuable. Yes. Necessary. No. Okay. I don't like a lot of the rhetoric that goes into the argument for uh, new age practices and beliefs. Mm -hmm. I don't like a lot of the the lexicon that is employed to defend a belief's similarity to Christianity or defend the validity of... It's mostly just stuff like the word energy getting thrown around too loosely yeah. or everything is love, everything is light. Yeah. Like... Sure. How could you not agree with that? But I think it's manipulative in a way because how could you not agree with that? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's at least that's that's my inner skeptic talking. And it's like, sure, sure, that can be agreed on. But I don't know. No, I'm with you. I, I know what you mean with that. Like, it's sort of, it arrives in the same dismissive place as a lot of religions can sometimes. Yeah. Dismissive is a very good word for it. I think that kind of rhetoric has the tendency to toss aside what the actual issues are. Mm -hmm. And like having read a bit of Sartre now and like getting into existentialist philosophy, you know, Sartre says a great thing, like existentialism does not wear itself out proving that there is no God. Yeah. The point is, even if there were a God or weren't a God, that's not the issue. Mm -hmm. The issue is that... I'm paraphrasing now pretty heavily, but the issue is that we will always find a way to find ourselves separate from one another and define our connections and relationships to one another by what we agree or disagree with. But yeah. why should that be true? So I don't know. So I guess the reason I don't like that kind of rhetoric is that it tries to force agreement in a way. Yeah. It tries to like, uh, you know, like, oh, Buddha was just another Christ figure. Sure. Yeah. But why does he need to be labeled a Christ figure? Yeah. You know, or Maharaji, like it was just another Christ figure. Sure. I'd love that to be true. I'd also love it to not be necessary for it to be true. Yeah. So why use the rhetoric? Why deploy the analogy at all? And that's the thing I find really to be kind of a bummer about spirituality in the new agey sense is that why is so fascinating. Like just asking that question... And trying to figure that stuff out is so cool. And that can occupy a, a really interesting conversation. And you can still believe in whatever you want to believe in. Because it really is sort of immaterial, you know. But I find those types of belief systems to be, they're almost like too gentle for me. Like they're just too like, what, like if we're all just sitting around 
bathing in the light. What are we going to talk about? You know, I don't know if that's a completely like selfish thing or just a completely like personal thing or what, but I've, I've never been able to truly embrace new agey stuff because of that, because I, I don't honestly know what the hell to do once we're all sitting on the couch looking at the crystal or, you know, burning the sage or doing things like that. I just, I'm like out of ideas at that point. And all I want to do is start asking the questions again. And it seems like it's kind of the one thing you're not supposed to do. And that's the problem with arriving anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, there are the people who really want to. There are the people who want a destination. I have to say that sometimes it crosses my mind that I also want a destination. But I think what I admire a lot about Pete Holmes is that he seems to appreciate both. Yeah, definitely. I think he's very readily able to admit that any conclusion or any destination is temporary. Yeah. And, you know, is is well-versed enough in Joseph Campbell to know that. <laughs> yeah. Because <So. laughs> they can still feel good. Mm. And they can still be comforting, you know? Like, it's there's still a real value in, in arriving someplace. But it can be a rest stop as opposed to a home. Like, I've gotten just as much comfort out of truck stops as I have out of my actual bed. They're both valid in their own way. <laughs> it just kind of depends what you're in the mood for and whatever you need. And like, Well, and it's also like you were saying earlier that he ends each part with, you know, oh, this must be where I am now and I must be happy now. Mm. And it, it's kind of like the same as don't we always remember, you know, a certain era in our lives, a certain, you know, whether it's just a season or whether it's a full year. But we remember very minute details mm. about it that seem to define the entire era. Yeah. You know, you remember a whole season by what you were listening to that season. Yeah. Or you remember, you know, the whole year can be defined by a couple really good conversations that you had or a couple really good dates that you went on. Yeah. But it by no means encapsulated the entire era. Yeah. So it's almost like if we look at those things as des as destinations, as retrospective destinations, mm. like where did we end up meaning, what did we end up taking from that? What did we end up letting define our memories of it? What did we end up allowing to continuously occupy precious space in our memories? And how did that then contribute to our understanding of like, well, of how that was an emotionally formative time. Yeah. So lo looking at things like that as temporary destinations is a valuable thing to go into something like this with because, yeah, I want to be a skeptic about this. Yeah, I want to be kind of cynical and say, like, you didn't arrive anywhere, Pete. Yeah. But that that's not the point of the end of the book. Yeah. We know it having read it. He knows it having written it. Mm. I just think that it came across that way a little bit. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean... I had the same exact takeaway. Like when I put it down physically, like after just finishing it, I was like, God damn it. Like there was that second where it was kind of a drag, but then I sort of remembered the preceding pages and it started to, to feel a little bit more, a little bit more whole. Yeah. Well, cause it, it feels a tiny bit like proselytizing at first. Yep. And you're like, motherfucker, you just got finished with the <laughs> evangelical church and now <laughs> yeah. you're proselytizing again. How does this make any sense? But then that's kind of what allows you to reevaluate like, oh yeah, being a former evangelical and having reformed kind of implies that he wouldn't be trying to proselytize or, or preach or, or witness to anybody. I think he's just being personally thankful. Yeah, exactly. In that sense. And plus we're going into it maybe as a reader being like, you know, you, we both probably started it from a somewhat skeptical-ish place. I didn't, no. I didn't start reading it as a skeptic because I, I, again, was a follower of his. Like, I already knew everything that he had been through. Some of those things were surprising to me to, for me to read. But no, for the most part, I wasn't going into it skeptically. I, I took way more away from it than I thought I would. I learned a lot about conditional love and feelings that I had had about that that were latent and dormant and... I definitely need, needed to see it written out. In some cases, actually, I was able to use that to recontextualize some of the areas and events in my life where I had thought that I was more fucked up about sex and body positivity than I actually was. Yeah. 
So like I definitely I needed to read somebody else who had had those same like like childhood experiences of not having the body seen and and respected and honored and what does that do to you when you're trying to figure out like are you at liberty to use your body later on you know and in, and in what ways and stuff like that there's a lot that goes into that well that's one of the biggest things that struck me right away was that type of stuff always felt it felt like stuff that people work out before they get to the starting line of adulthood, you know? It's like you get this goddamn free-for-all up until that point where, like, it feels consequential in the moment, but ultimately you can pretty much get away with murder and then all of a sudden you're an adult. And, like, whatever you did, whatever you put together for yourself before that point is what you've got now. And, you know, you'll mature, you'll build on it, whatever, but, like, that's your foundation, you've staked your claim, and that's it for you. And I felt fucking doomed for, like so much of my 20s and I still do in so many ways but it was kind of nice to read that where he set it up that way <laughs> like he felt exactly that way for so much of that book and then sort of started to like peer beyond that place and experience these things and then yep they panned out exactly the way you'd think they would like there were mistakes there were heartbreaks there were disasters and then he kind of just mysteriously kept getting back up kept like dusting off that sense of joy again and that was very, uh, very reassuring in a lot of ways to see that, like, all right, that can happen. And then it started to not make as much logical sense that you would be damned. Yeah. But it feels so valid that you are. Mm. Like, unless you deliberately question it or get completely thrown off your game to where you have to figure something else out, like, you kind of never challenge that because it's hard to even know that it's there. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying is like there there was a lot that I wasn't aware of mm -hmm. and there was a lot that I assumed was there that wasn't actually there. I've always felt weird about not being as sex positive as I feel I should be. Mm. I've always felt weird about not being like uh, um, like a more like sexually liberated person, I suppose. Yeah. But in reading this book, I realized that that's not what it is. Mm. It's actually just that I am an introvert who enjoys quality time with people. Yeah. Like if I'm going to be... So, okay, I'll tell this story. A few months before this book came out, someone from my past reached out to me. I'm not going to be at all specific here, but essentially we made a date together. She had to cancel the date and mm -hmm. didn't bother telling me that she was kind of like, <laughs> we're meeting for coffee at like 11 a.m. on a Sunday. So it's not like it was a big to-do. It's not like we had like big plans or anything. But yeah. it would have been nice if I had known that the date was being <laughs> canceled. Um, yeah. So a couple days go by and I don't hear from her at all. And mm. again, fine because this was like a very casual, just like kind of friends catching up, but also rude. Yeah. Like really rude. <laughs> and like disconcerting on a social level, I imagine. I mean, exactly. Just, so yeah. eventually I send her a text and I check in with her and just say like, Hey, I, I hope you're all right. I haven't heard from you. If you want to try again and grab a coffee and catch up, like I'd still love to do that. And immediately I get a response. It's just like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't, you know, I, I'd love that. Sorry about the other day. I, I had a date the night before and it went a little too well, if you know what I mean. And I was like, I had this really adverse reaction. Because mm -hmm. it brought a lot of feelings back. And I felt very uncomfortable that I was having this reaction because it felt a little, a little slut shamey to me. It felt a little like I should be more sex positive than this. I should be way more accepting that somebody had a date and had a good time on that date. And I mean, yeah, it's offensive to me that my time wasn't respected. Yeah. But it shouldn't be offensive to me that it wasn't respected for the sake of having a sexual encounter. Yeah. Even now, that is hard for me to wrap my head around. Because that's not the kind of dater that I've ever been, really. Yeah. But then I realized something when I read this book. Mm -hmm. 
that I'm way more sex positive than I think I am. Yeah. And I'm reading kind of like what Pete Holmes describes as basically not feeling liberated to pursue sexual partnerships or, or casual sex based on these sort of conditional acceptance ideas imposed upon you in childhood when you grow up in the evangelical church. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, I grew up there too, but I didn't, that was never really thrown on me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little bit like, a, I'll definitely, there's some residual stuff there, but mm-hmm. a lot of it didn't stick for me. It's something else entirely, which is that if someone makes plans for me to go out and get coffee and catch up, I assume that quality time is about to happen. I assume that meaningful discourse is about to happen. I assume that I'm about to have a connection, whether romantic or not, it doesn't matter. I assume that I'm going to have a connection with someone through conversation. And that is as intimate as I could ever ask for anyone to be with me. Uh That is so meaningful to me. And I feel as though casual sex is the polar opposite of that. Mm. So in a way, I hear, you know, these plans get broken. And I'm not supposed to take it personally, but I take it personally because it invalidates what my values are. It invalidates what would be fulfilling for me. Yeah. And then I started looking back on all of these other moments in my life when I've felt that same way, mm-hmm. when I've felt like, you know, oh, it's the end of a party. It's three in the morning and everyone is off in bedrooms together or too drunk to speak. Yep. And I feel so alone right now because I have no one to talk to. Yeah. And it's that same feeling and it has nothing to se- to do with sex. It has everything to do with I have no one to talk to. Yeah. And so I see casual sex as the antithesis to meaningful discourse. Mm. As weird as that is to say, like, that's kind of what I realized. Mm. So I read this book and realized that I did not have a lot of those same traumas from Mm. my childhood. And that like, that the demand for purity and chastity was not quite imprinted upon me. In the same way that it was upon him. So that allowed me to discern between, well, what is part of my religious upbringing and -hmm. what is part of my qualities and my values as somebody with my personality type. Mm. Very, very different things and very important to make that distinction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a deep dive into it, too. Because something like, especially something like sex is so multifaceted, you know, it's, there's so much packed into that interaction that even the most casual of encounters, it's, there's so many things that get batted around constantly. It's just kind of everyday aspects of them. There's so many things that aren't everyday aspects of them, but it's, it is a like pretty jam packed experience when you think about it in a lot of ways. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot going on there, like (laughs) mentally, emotionally, physically, like it's just, yeah, I I feel like it's there's a lot to kind of parse through if you have any, any issues whatsoever with, with anything like that throughout your life, there's so many different angles it could potentially be coming from that look like other angles that it's hard to just slap a label on it. Especially that distinction between being sexually liberated and being sex positive. Mm. Like they're two kind of very different things. Like I'm not a sex liberated person myself because I just do not communicate that way. And I trust no one, but I'm sex positive. Like I have absolutely nothing against that or people doing that. And it seems like a fucking blast. And I wish that I was a person <laughs> who know. could trust another human being in any way, but I don't. And I'm, you know, that's fine. <laughs> but there's, you know, I realize now that like the reasons why I'm not a super liberated person in, in a lot of respects have nothing to do with those specific things. Mm. They just have to do with like the level of myself that I'm willing to let anybody see. Yeah. And it's very rare that I feel comfortable enough under any circumstances to like truly let that guard down. Yeah. And that's, what's so interesting to me is that like, I'm surprised that I don't feel more of a push to, to share my body rather than my intellect. Mm. Just because I did not grow up in a body positive environment, really. Mm. 
or at least I didn't grow up thinking that I should be positive, body positive. At some point that was, that was impressed upon me. But so it, it's interesting that like, I've never really felt compelled to compensate for that mm. in my adult life. And that like still what I gravitate toward is, is just quality time, which is fine. Cause that's my love language. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, I just want to share the special moments of discourse with people. Yeah. Wherever it's possible. And that is, I mean, like the most, the most fulfilled that I can be in intimacy. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about, uh, do you remember the malaise part of the book? Yes, vaguely. Just refresh me real quick on the specifics. It might not be as big a portion of it as I remember it being, but it it is kind of, there's a big deal made of it in other interviews that he's done and stuff. But while filming season two of Crashing, it's kind of like I'm not riding the high of the success of the first season anymore. I'm burnt out. Mm. He's drinking a lot. He's, yeah, you know, like sneaking off to the liquor store every day on his, like... On his break from this shooting schedule, and yeah, no, okay, yeah, I remember that now. Yeah, and he um, opens up iTunes and starts playing a series by Ram Dass. It might be Love Serve Remember. Um, there are a couple of different series that Ram Dass does that he references all the time, and so this this passage that he finds specifically talks about a malaise of the soul or something like that, mm-hmm. and. Well, I'd better find it. Okay. So the chapter is called A Deep Unflinching Malaise. Mm. Ram Dass was talking about the time in his life when he too had achieved all his wildest dreams. He had been a Harvard professor at the top of his game. He had money and boats and planes and smoked cigars, laughing in photos with clean white sweaters tied around his neck. If life was a game, he thought he had won. And though I played that game as hard as I knew how, Ramdas said, for all the points I knew how to collect, there was in me the very gnawing uneasiness that I was missing something, a malaise. And when we experience a malaise in our own culture, we tend to treat that malaise as if it is our fault. We treat it as if it's our neurosis and it's our lack of adaptability to the existing culture, which must be right because there's so many of them. And I kept trying to readapt my being to try to fit into the gratification patterns that the culture was offering me. And it just wasn't working. And I started to drink more, and I started to get more extreme in my ways of seeking pleasure in order to gain the kind of fulfillment to give me a feeling of well-being. Well, then I got some years into experimentation with psychotropic chemicals, chemicals that alter alter consciousness, and that changed my head around a great deal. I saw through those experiments that perhaps my malaise, my discomfort, was not just my pathology, but it was a deeper something in me attempting to awaken, and that maybe instead of treating it as some sickness that ought to be treated as a problem, I should see it as something graceful to be honored. And maybe it would be useful to allow my life to adapt, to tune to those feelings of wrongness or rightness within myself. So yeah, this, it really gave me a lot to think about when it comes to malaise. Because like, you and I have talked about that feeling of waking up morning after morning, yeah. dissatisfied with our accomplishments, dreading that we have to keep chasing the accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, meditating on malaise in this way. That it is a social failure or a societal failure. Like it's mm-hmm. almost where shame comes from. Yeah. Like that you have failed in relation to societal expectations. Or that in this particular brand of malaise, I think it's that you have fulfilled every societal expectation for your age, for your place in the milieu, for your class. Mm-hmm. And now what? Yeah. You know, what comes next? Did you peak too early? Is there now a sense that you are in some higher echelon and is your identity crisis now just trying not to be superior, you know, or, or is there an identity crisis of how do I clear the bar that I've just set for myself? Do I now just help others clear this bar themselves? 
Or do I acknowledge that there is no bar? <laughs> yeah, and that's definitely a choice. It's interesting, too, when you think about it that way, because malaise seems like the type of thing that... It's like gangrene or something. Like It doesn't happen instantaneously. It only happens when you let something simpler linger for a little while mm. and kind of like try to forget about it. I feel like the day you wake up with the malaise, it's the day you realize you've had malaise, but it's just a pattern of dissatisfaction that eventually you become aware of because it becomes too bad to suppress anymore. So it is interesting if that weren't forced to fester, like if you didn't have to shy away from it because of all the shame that you would incur as a result, then there kind of would be no malaise. There would just be momentary dissatisfaction and pivots. Yeah. Even if it's the wrong pivot, you know, you but you wouldn't feel this pressure to keep staying in the direction you're staying in so badly. Like, yeah, there's a lot of unhealthy shit there. I don't know what the goal is, though. Like, I don't know if what you're supposed to do or if it's entirely tailor-made. Like, if it's the whole, like, there is no bar versus lower the bar versus keep raising the bar, help others get to the bar, like... Or just hang out at the bar. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. I know I've I've been waking up with it recently. There was a time, I remember when I started dating Kate, we were kind of warning each other about like our sleep habits, you know? Mm-hmm. And I said to her, I wake up every morning with intense existential dread and malaise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dissatisfied with my accomplishments and my contributions <laughs> to society. <laughs> and yeah. it cripples me to think <laughs> that I haven't done more with art than I have mm. every morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just thought recently how not everyone wakes up like that. It didn't even occur to me that that's not just how the day begins. <laughs> I was like, wait, people could be happy about this? <laughs> this? It doesn't happen to me as much as it did back then, but it has been happening to me recently a little bit more. Not every day, but with mm-hmm. more frequency. I don't know. I suppose it's just a self-image thing. I suppose it's just wanting to have control over how I see myself and how others see me, and I want those to be the same thing. Yeah. No, I'm with you there, though. It's It's been significantly worse since the pandemic started, but, like, especially the last, like, maybe, I don't know, like, three months. It's been yeah ridiculous. It's shorter than it was in terms of the intensity, but there's, like, this really brightly burning 10 minutes every morning where I'm like, oh, my God, I have fucked up <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> and I'm not sure I can write this shit, man. Uh, but then it sort of simmers into just a basic discomfort or like a God, okay. It it goes back down to those <laughs> those more familiar daily levels. But I don't know what it is. I've just been trying to fight it as much as I can and trying to learn from it and trying to like challenge it really. And that's been helping, but see I think there is always a simmering layer of it. Yeah. But I also think that I probably dissociate from it a lot. Mm -hmm. And when I wake up and it's raw, it's kind of when the only time I really acknowledge it. Yeah. And I hate it. And that's the one thing. Oh, yeah. That's what I was just going to say. It's like the one thing about the the Ram Dass quote that strikes me as odd a little bit. And it's it's true of a lot of the new age approaches I've, I've seen to these types of things is that whole being at peace with it. I have this really hard time being at peace with that. It's like, fuck you. I don't want to be at peace with you. You're an asshole. And I want to challenge that feeling and learn from that feeling and and confront it at every turn. And it's not always in a totally active way, but Mm -hmm. it can be just as dangerous to embrace something like malaise fully if that's not the right thing for you to be doing. It's just as dangerous as denying it because, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're just spending the rest of your life meditating on how you feel nothing. Like, isn't there still shit you want to try? It doesn't have to be your, your path, but yeah, just try shit. You know, if you're already a doctor, become a lawyer. If you're looking to play piano, go learn how to do that. Like, jump out of a fucking plane. Try to a submarine. Like, just start doing stuff. And either something will occur to you from that that's a cool path, or you'll just have the coolest goddamn epilogue ever. <laughs> I don't know. To me, that's just more exciting than shedding my civilian clothes and just kind of thinking about how I've attained everything 
and therefore I've attained nothing. Yeah. But I'm also a feisty young buck, you know, I haven't like matured in the, <laughs> the ways that all these people have. So I might be missing a significant amount of life experience. So I don't know, but that, that always, I have a really hard time locking in with that perspective. A lot of times when I hear it. Yeah. I find that's one of the most challenging things about that kind of rhetoric for me too, is that it's hard to know whether the takeaway is know how to respond to the pressure mm-hmm. or realize that there is no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> so like I often think about how nice it would be to just sort of live this monk-like life mm-hmm. and only respond to the pressure. Yeah. You know, only but I guess in that sense there is also no pressure. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like if I devoted my entire existence to writing folk songs, there would be a pressure mm-hmm. to say I have made this declaration and now I must live up to it. Mm-hmm. But there is at the same time no pressure because I don't have to make time for it. Mm-hmm. I merely have to live it. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the pressure that we feel a lot, and a lot of like why we tend to feel malaise is, okay, balance this desire or balance this success against everything there is in the world that does not validate those desires or that success against everything in the world that does not thrive based on your own desires and success against yeah. everything in the world that is indifferent to mm. your achievements or against everything in the world that by virtue of it existing in contrast with your desires impedes your desires from being fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So if you no longer have to worry about those things, then can't you just live in a monastery <laughs> perpetually on some retreat or in a hermitage somewhere and just do that. So I suppose the impetus for my malaise a lot of the time is knowing that even if there weren't any pressure, there would still be pressure because I would still find things to, (laughs) I would, I would find things to impede my desires. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's just kind of what it is, you know? But that's probably true even of the people in in the monasteries living in those retreats. You know, they've just practiced. Like, they've just got the the motion down a lot more fluidly where, like, pressure starts to rise and they drain it. Mm. Like, they know to meditate certain amounts of time, certain ways when certain feelings crop up. Like, to me, the feeling of of that pressure, however you categorize it, is just coexistence. It's just accounting for the fact that even if we lived in a vacuum, there would still be the pressure to get food or get water right, or things like that. So there's always going to be something, there's some relational force going on where it's either you and the world or it's you and your peers or it's you and animals or you and the sky. Like there's always something else that you exist in relation to. So there will always be some awareness of it. And to me, that's what the pressure kind of is. Like, And the guilt is like when you feel like you've let too much of it in or let the wrong things in the wrong places. And that's what always occurs to me is like what people mean when they talk about like the pressure in a negative way. Mm. It's like they let the decks get swamped. So it's not the the existence of pressure that's wrong or right. It's it's the, the unguarded moment before it became an issue for you. It's interesting to me that we've talked mostly about sex and God and not comedy at all. (laughs) Well, he spends like a weirdly small amount of that book talking about comedy. That's true. Think about it. Yeah. Like it's there the whole time. It's always an objective and it's always like an environment or something, but he doesn't, comedy is a weird thing to talk about. And the narrative is funny. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. It's it's not very much about like he alludes to his comedy career purely biographically almost. Mhm. I don't know if that really loud truck was audible just now, but <laughs> I heard it, yeah. But yeah, it, you have it, a good disapproving gaze by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's powerful. It's cool. <laughs> I've practiced a lot. <laughs> Uh, it's almost like comedy is just sort of a necessary backdrop for Mm -hmm. all this to be happening against. And like, 
it's sort of always in the background. It's in the foreground insofar as that's what gives him this narrative voice. Mm-hmm. I must think of it like, uh, like he often makes this analogy that for a comedian to be married, like it, it has to be a three-way. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be, you know, husband, wife, and, and comedy, Yeah, <laughs> you know, or uh-huh. partner, partner, comedy. So comedy is always kind of there as a mistress. Comedy is always kind of present in the narrative just as another love. And like, just as he speaks with love about Ram Dass, just as he speaks with love about his wife, he speaks about comedy and through comedy, like in mm-hmm. that same way. And I think that is why it has to be included in the title in the same way as these other intimate things are, you know, a relationship with God is an intimate relationship or relationship with sex or through sex is by definition intimate. And Mm. like comedy is just kind of the same. And, and it's almost like you can, you can read comedy, sex, God as the linear story of it all. You know, mm-hmm. with the implication that God also came before comedy, mm. you know, and so it's kind of like back to the starting point. Um, so like in a linear biographical way, comedy, sex, God makes sense, but also as three independent things, as three independent facets of one's life, mm. they are the three things that he has learned to accept himself through Yep, and learned how to communicate and learned how to be loving through comedy, through sex and God, and like in some very unconventional ways. And they're all, they're life forces too, all three of those things for him. Like he mentions them all in very much the same ways throughout the books. Like they're these qu- things he's questioned facets of yeah, or expressions of, but he, he has never really questioned their right to exist as a concept. Like there's always been that question of like, how the hell does spirituality fit in or how the hell does... Like, could I be a comic and could I be a Christian? Like, there's all sorts of debates like that, but he never questions, like, the need for those things in his his own spirit or his life or his love for those things. Mm. It's the same with the romantic component of the book. Like, he's questioning the execution, but not the need. It's almost like at the beginning of the narrative, he would be arguing that, you know, here I am in my adolescence, and there's no possible way that these three things can serve me equally or that I could serve yeah. them equally. Yeah. And I suppose the thesis, if anything, is follow me to the end here. I'm going to get to a temporary <laughs> destination and mm. we'll see that these three things can serve us equally if we don't approach any of them conditionally. Yeah, yeah. And don't allow any of them to approach us conditionally. Yeah. That's good. And they can all serve us as well. And yeah, so it, it's almost like um, creating an inner ethos for oneself where these things can coexist, allowing that they all do coexist anyway. Mm-hmm. But in one's inner world, can they coexist? Can they coexist as elements of life that are taken for granted that do jointly serve you on a daily basis? But recognizing that each of them has an attachment that comes along with it Mm. as whether it's desire, you know, whether it's your desire to be a comedian, your desire to be more accepting of sex, be more sex positive, whether it's your Mm. desire to have a thing called God, yeah, you know, and I think that this is a book just about attachment in a way. It's like, I've always had an attachment to these three things, whether it has been an unhealthy attachment or not. And this is the story of how they become enmeshed and how they become a part of a new sort of conception of spirituality that allows them not only to coexist, but that allows all these things to be conceived of by someone who was taught that there are wrongful or like harmful elements of each. Yeah, and I kind of, I found uh, it admirable in a way that with all that in mind that he managed to maintain the level of excitement Yeah, that he did and still does, you know, like if nothing else, he's an excited guy. (laughs) 
at least publicly. <laughs> very true. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, reading the book, like, I wouldn't have expected him to come out like a fucking madman. Like, you see him in an interview or something, and he's a goddamn madman. Yeah. It's like very lovable, like in a very, very good way. But he doesn't seem like he's that dulcet form of enlightened that happens sometimes. He doesn't seem like life has beaten the joy out of him. Like he's just blasted through this fabric we call life and he's just figuring out what all the pieces mean. And that's just, that's cool as hell to me. That's one of the coolest things about the book and about his whole trajectory, in my opinion, is that he's he's never let it screw with that, that kind of childlike thing that life seems to be so determined to rob you of. Mm-hmm. 